Today is Wednesday, August the 31st. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that's www.prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or your comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. NASA moon launch postponed. Artemis 1 launch scrubbed as engine problem defies fast fix. NASA scrubbed a much-anticipated first flight of its space launch system rocket Monday after a series of problems with the rocket and the fueling procedures could not be quickly resolved. The space agency had been planning to launch the massive rocket and the Orion spacecraft without any astronauts on board on a trajectory toward the moon as part of its Artemis program. Now it will stand down and reevaluate problems with a complicated vehicle that has suffered delays and setbacks for years. Engineers struggled to get one of the boosters RS-25 engines chilled to the correct temperature by running liquid hydrogen kept at minus 423 degrees Fahrenheit through it. They tried a series of fixes, but none worked. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said that the agency does not launch until it's right. I think it's just illustrative that this is a very complicated machine, a very complicated system, and all those things have to work. Scrubs are just part of the space business, and it's part of a test flight. They'll get to the bottom of it, they'll get it fixed, and then we'll fly. The scrub is still a disappointment for NASA, and a setback for a program that has suffered all sorts of delays. Critics have derided the rocket as a Senate launch system, arguing it does more to create jobs in key congressional districts than open new frontiers. And the delay is yet another issue for the rocket, which struggled to complete some key testing milestones before the launch. NASA ran into a similar problem in June during a test known as a wet dress rehearsal when there was a leak of liquid hydrogen in one of the lines leading from the ground supplies to the rocket. This is something they wanted to test during wet dress. It's a particularly tricky issue to get that temperature dialed in. In the days leading up to the flight, NASA officials had tried to manage expectations, saying repeatedly that the flight was a test to see how the rocket performs in real-world conditions and warn they would likely encounter problems along the way. In an interview last week, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said that despite all the excitement surrounding the launch, he said, I wanted to remind people this is a test flight. We're going to stress this thing in a way that we would never do with humans on board. And so I just want to bring everybody back to reality. On Saturday, Mike Sarafin, NASA's Artemis mission manager, said that the launch could scrub for any number of reasons. 
we're not going to promise that we're going to get off on Monday. We could have weather. We could have technical issues. Or we could have a range and public safety hold or a combination of those. Still, it is a setback for the agency, which very much wanted the launch to go well and had prepared a celebratory broadcast with Hollywood stars and performances by Yo-Yo Ma and Herbie Hancock that was shelved when the problems became evident. NASA has backup launch dates of September 2nd and September 5th, but it was not immediately clear when it may try to launch again. NASA got a late start to fueling the rocket when a thunderstorm came within five miles of the launch pad at about midnight. Once the storm passed, engineers began fueling the rocket. First, the liquid oxygen, which was going well, and then the liquid hydrogen. But soon afterward, sensors at the base of the rocket detected a leak. NASA stopped the fueling, then started and stopped again in a fitful effort to keep the launch on track. NASA was able to fully fuel the first stage and was nearly done with the rocket's second stage. The team did a fantastic job working through that problem and get us past it, said Jeremy Graber, the Artemis One assistant launch director, but it ran into a problem when it attempted to prep the engines for launch. Liquid hydrogen was not running through one of the four RS-25 engines mounted to the base of the rocket. As a result, it did not reach the correct temperature needed for launch. Garrett Weissman, a former NASA astronaut, wrote on Twitter that the scrub was not surprising. It's really hard to launch a brand new rocket on the first try, especially one this complex. NASA had to be careful with this one since they only have this one rocket intended for the Artemis I mission. Nelson, who flew on the space shuttle, in 1986, when he was a member of Congress, said that scrubs are a normal part of spaceflight. He said his shuttle launch was delayed four times before it took off, but the fifth try was a flawless mission, he said. Google locked parents' account over medical photos of their child. The New York Times reported on a situation of a parent whose toddler son had a medical condition that needed diagnosis and used photos to communicate with medical professionals. The father used his Android smartphone to take photos of his son's groin to track the size and progression of an infection. The situation took place in early 2021, still in the midst of the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The photos were taken at the request of a nurse, so the photos can be examined before a video consultation and ultimately led to the prescription for antibiotics that ended up clearing out the infection. What was the problem? Two days after the photos were taken, the father received a notification from Google that revealed his accounts had been locked due to harmful content that was a severe violation of Google's policies and might be illegal. Google recognized the content as harmful using its Content Safety API, which uses AI to proactively identify never-before-seen imagery. The content is then reviewed and, if confirmed, reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children with the account in question locked for further review. In this case, the action of these photos being backed up to his Google Photo account 
as the affirmative action that Google needed to scan through the images. Google was then required by federal law to report the images. As part of that process, the parent lost access to his email, contacts, photos, and even his phone number as he used Google Fi. Google denied his appeals to reopen the account even after the San Francisco Police Department determined that no crime had occurred. The San Francisco Police Department even tried to reach the parent regarding that verdict, but wasn't able to because the number they had was the Google Fi number the parent had been locked out of. The parent considered taking Google to court over the situation to get his data back, but it was estimated that the case would cost around $7,000, a price that the parent didn't feel was worthwhile. Beyond the parent situation, the New York Times found another nearly identical case that occurred around the same time period, which had been met with the same silence from Google on reversing the situation. Google told New York Times that it stood by the decisions. In a statement, Google stood by its actions saying, Child sexual abuse material is abhorrent, and we're committed to preventing the spread of it on our platforms. We follow U.S. law in defining what constitutes unwanted imagery and use a combination of hash matching technology and artificial intelligence to identify it and remove it from our platforms. Additionally, our team of child safety experts reviews flag content for accuracy and consults with pediatricians to help ensure we're able to identify instances where users may be seeking medical advice. Needless to say, this is a nightmare scenario for many, especially with Google's apparent indifference to reinstating the account after authorities confirmed there was no crime committed. But it also serves as a good reminder for a few things. First and foremost, it's a reminder to make backups. It's a good reminder not keep all your eggs in one basket, meaning on a Google account. Using a Google account to hold all your information is not a good idea at all and is not recommended. And as far as AI goes, that artificial intelligence wasn't very intelligent. Huawei CEO reportedly puts company in survival mode. Ren Zhengfei, the founder of Huawei, warns tough economic times mean it's time to focus on profit and quality. He delivered a stark warning for the tech company's future, sparking alarm with the frankness of his assessment and what it signals for smaller businesses amid China's economic troubles and a global downturn. In a leaked internal memo, Ren Xingfei told Huawei staff the following, The chill will be felt by everyone, and the company must focus on profit over cash flow and expansion if it is to survive the next three years indicating further job cuts and divestments. The next decade will be a very painful historical period as the global economy continues to decline and a continued blockade by the United States on some Chinese business. Huawei must reduce any overly optimistic expectations for the future and until 2023 or even 2025. We must make survival the most important guideline and not only survive, but survive with quality. In the past, we embraced the ideal of globalization and aspired to serve all mankind. So what is our ideal now? Survive and earn a little money, where we can. 
From this point of view, we need to adjust the market structure and study what can be done and what should be abandoned. The CEO blamed a combination of post-COVID economic complications, war, and U.S. sanctions for his pessimism. He therefore wants Huawei to halt complex projects that have high risk of failure, use the company's own cloud to improve efficiencies, reduce R&D on items like electric cars, and abandoned businesses have little prospect of turning a profit. China's economy is under pressure from factors including pandemic restrictions, a property industry crisis, and plummeting international relations. The country is not expected to reach its economic growth target of 5.5% this year. Huawei, listed as China's largest firm, is working to manage big fours in revenue and profit. Revenue declined 14% in the first three months of 2022, and its net profit margin narrowed to 4.3% from 11.1% a year earlier in the three months through March. It has been a flashpoint of U.S.-China tensions, with Washington and other Western counterparts restricting Huawei from their markets over national security concerns. The company has also been barred from buying some foreign technology. Ren's memo went viral on Chinese social media, shared and discussed by more than 100 million users, with some expressing fear of what it meant for regular people and small businesses if a company the size of Huawei was sending such warnings. Several blamed the United States, with one commentator saying Huawei's expansion came to an abrupt end under the frenzied suppression of the United States. Ren's reasoning is that the global economy is in for up to a decade of depressed demand, with very tough years expected from 2023 to 2025, a period during which a focus on survival would be necessary. Huawei recently reported the first half results of feature tepid growth and a massive drop in profits. When someone like Ren admits how much trouble a national champion like Huawei can be facing as a result of U.S. sanctions, it does indicate the wider Chinese economy is also vulnerable. China's government announced a further $146 billion in stimulus funding and 19 new measures to address the economic damage wrought by the pandemic and the country's hardline responses, as well as a crisis in the property development industry. Extensive and unpredictable lockdowns have disrupted factory production, supply chains, and general economic activity, particularly among small businesses. The private sector provides a third of all jobs in China and creates 90% of new urban jobs, according to state media. Youth unemployment reached an all-time high of 19.9% in July, and the general urban jobless rate remained at a relatively high rate of 5.4%. Unemployment insurance payouts also hit a record high in June. Amid sporadic COVID-19 outbreaks in some regions since the beginning of this year, job demand in the market has reduced and some recruitment campaigns have been canceled or delayed. When someone like Ren admits how much trouble a major People's Republic of China corporation like Huawei can be facing as a result of U.S. sanctions, it does indicate the wider Chinese economy is right now very vulnerable. DuckDuckGo opens up its free email privacy service 
to everyone. Last year, DuckDuckGo announced a free service designed to fend off email trackers and help people protect their privacy. The email protection beta was initially available through a waitlist. Now, it's open beta, meaning everyone can try it without having to wait for access. Email protection is a forwarding service that removes trackers from messages. DuckDuckGo will tell you which trackers it scrubs as well. During the waitlist beta, DuckDuckGo says it found trackers in 85% of testers' emails. Anyone can now sign up for an duck.com email address, which will work across desktop, iOS, and Android. DuckDuckGo says you can create unlimited private email addresses, including a throwaway one for every website, if you prefer. You can also deactivate an address at any time. The company has been beefing up email protection with more privacy-focused measures. It says link Tracking protection helps prevent tracking in email links while smarter encryption upgrades unencrypted HTTP links in emails to secure HTTPS links whenever possible. On top of that, you can now reply to messages with an duck.com address instead of your regular email account. Email protection is available on the DuckDuckGo privacy browser for iOS and Android. Go to the email protection section of the settings to try it. On desktop, you'll need the DuckDuckGo privacy essentials extension for Firefox, Chrome, Edge, and Brave, or DuckDuckGo's Mac browser. Simply visit the email section of the company's website. Dozens of dangerous Android apps spotted. Several malicious Android apps appear on the Google Play Store. Most contain a banking trojan that steals your financial information and other personal details. While those are no longer available, more are now taking their place. Malware comes in two different forms, and cyber criminals continually improve technology for their attacks. This makes it more difficult for companies like Google and Apple to find and eliminate threats. Cybersecurity researchers from Bitdefender recently found more than 35 additional bad apps, many of which are spreading adware. This malware version infects your device and serves you with ads, earning money for the criminals behind the attack. The apps have a combined total of over 2 million downloads. One thing that makes some of these bad apps more dangerous is that once you download them, they change icons and names, making them difficult to spot and remove. They then begin serving aggressive advertising. As Bitdefend explains, criminals use this common technique to monetize their presence on the Google Play Store. But advertising isn't the only problem with these apps. Many legitimate apps offer ads to their users But these show ads through their own framework, which means they can also serve other types of malware to their victims. To find out what the malicious apps are, do a search on the following words. 36 Malicious Androids Digging a bit deeper, researchers found that the GPS Location Maps app 
quickly change its name and icon to resemble the setting app on Android. On some testing devices, the app requested permissions to bypass the battery optimization feature and start foreground and services notification. So not only does it serve you with lots of advertising, but it also prevents your phone from stopping the app, which drains your battery. What can you do about it? There are a few ways to minimize the risk of exposure to malicious apps. And here's a few suggestions. Turn on Google Play Protect by heading to Google Play Store. And turn on Scan Apps with Play Protect. Another piece of advice is check your phone for security updates by going to Settings, System, System Update. Only download apps from official app stores. Always go to the official source and double-check that you are installing the correct app. Watch out for apps that use a similar logo to other popular apps or have similar functions. Also, check reviews to see if others are warning about suspicious activity. And finally, pay attention to permissions. Stay away if an app wants full access to your text messages or notification. Google scrapped plan to consolidate its communication services into Meet. It was supposed to make things simpler and more straightforward. It was meant to bring some sense and order. Instead, Google just made it more confusing. Earlier this month, the company rebranded its dual video chat app as Meet and brought over Meet's features. That left the original to be phased out Meet app with a new Meet original name. But apparently not all customers have been happy with Duo's sudden identity change. With the latest update to the Meet app for Android, Google has brought back the original Duo icon and named as a separate shortcut that appears in the app launcher. Tapping on Duo opens Google Meet, so you now got two ways of accessing the same application. Google made this move intentionally so that users would be able to launch Meet by searching for Duo, just like they had done before it was rebranded. But the fact that this was even necessary again points to a company that had just lost the thread on strategy around these services. The Duo shortcut might be helpful to ease the transition, but it also opens the door to more confusion, especially when Google itself is telling everyone to look for the Meet name and icon as your one app for video calling and meetings. That's not exactly the case anymore. Now is it? We're back to two icons and two names for the same app. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, technology, and how they impact you and your workplace. This is where I cover a number of different things. In this case, I have a question from Peter, and it goes like this. How does technical staff differ between small companies, medium companies, and large companies? And the answer is, wow, yes, quite a bit. I have been 
in both areas. I have been in I, I've been in the small companies, medium companies, and large companies. Uh, it all depends on how you define, of course, small, medium, and large. But the answer is I've been in IT in all three categories the small, the medium, and the big. And right now I'm in the big business, uh, but I've, I've dabbled everywhere else. And, uh, let's start off with the small company. The small company is a place where you sometimes, the smaller the company it is, sometimes it's just somebody who is a part-time IT nerd. They are the person who, and this happens to be sometimes frequently, uh, somebody who's already geared in that direction. They're already heavily involved with something like the finances. They're heavily involved with a lot of the tech area of their life and with the company. So they also fix a few computers along the way, and they kind of are the, the person that everybody looks to. And this is something that that can happen even in some of the unexpected areas. My wife has been the IT person for some of the places that she has worked. Why? Because she's the person running the computer. So she has to be the person who answers the computer questions, who provides the training to the software, to, uh, to whatever it is. She makes sure that the computers are running, and when it gets over her head, she would escalate on up to another level of IT. Now, that other level of IT is somebody who's been a full-time whatever, and it's usually an outside contractor or whatever, but she knows enough to handle them. So that's the small company. Now, we move on up, and as we move up to larger companies where they have somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, 50, 60, 100 computers, we then tend to get a dedicated IT person. Now, this dedicated IT person needs to know almost everything. Not everything, but almost everything. They need to handle the day-to-day needs of the company. Once in a while, they might call out for a specialist for something, and it all depends on how big the company is and what the, you know, what the general workload is. I've been that person where I would handle just about everything, and I would call in a specialist for certain things that were just a little bit more time-consuming or a little bit more just at the edge of my knowledge where I could say, I know how to do this. I, I know the, the book learning and I've dabbled in some of the more advanced items, but I'm not quite to that point where I want to just sit down and get this done in half an hour or two hours when it would take me because I got to look up things, I got to follow the instructions and all of that, read the manual, is so it might take me eight hours. Well, you know, if it's going to take me eight hours, it's worth the company paying somebody to come in for two hours. And that's what we would do. Now, let's move up into larger companies. The larger the company gets, the larger that we start looking at the entire IT infrastructure, the more that people get specialized. When we start talking about specialization, we start talking about it at, at certain company levels, at certain company sizes, we split people up. 
the support people who are dealing with the customers. And when I say customers, I'm talking about the end users of the equipment within the company, not the external customers. But there may be people along those lines in some IT-focused companies. But I'm talking about, yes, splitting that up. And somebody's on the back end. They're handling more of the networks and the servers. And maybe we'll start throwing in custom programmers. And as we move along, we start getting into more of that division of knowledge where we start getting people who are just specialists in one particular piece of software and maybe even a subset of that piece of software. And they program just for that. And then another person programs for another piece of software. And we start getting into project management people and we get into a lot of different sets and roles. For instance, my role For the company that I work for is just change management, change management just for the operating systems, the base level of what your systems do. Now, I do that for not even the desktops, but only for the servers. So it gets very specialized and very specific. And that's kind of how it all works out. It's just a progression where we get more specialized and more specific as far as what your knowledge is. I've played all of those roles all the way through. Well, maybe not as much as my as my wife, not that junior of a role. But yeah, it's it's quite a, a, very, a varied situation. And Some people who are experienced with a specialist don't always work well in the generalist and vice versa. But that's kind of what makes IT so interesting. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. When it comes to health issues, not all forms of being sedentary are equal. Which is worse? Sitting in front of a computer all day long, staring at the monitor, or just sitting there on the sofa watching TV. Studies show that sedentary lifestyle creates many health risks. Regular physical activity appears to confer a degree of protection from various problems, both physical and mental. Simply walking around the apartment a few times a day appears to help. Now a team of researchers has looked at the opposite question. Are all forms of inactivity equal? The answer is probably not. While the details depend on the health issues involved, in that computer use appears to be somewhat protective against dementia. The physical risks associated with inactivity generally involve lower cardiovascular health, either directly or via obesity. Even a small amount of physical activity appears capable of limiting these impacts although increased exercise generally seems to be even better. Details vary depending on the study and exact risk being examined. But exercise also seems to improve mental health. It can be an effective therapy for depression and other disorders and appears to help stave off some of the unfortunate impacts of aging. Exercise and physical activity have shown promise in reducing rates of cognitive decline structural brain atrophy, and dementia risk in older adults. 
citing work done in studies. One of the oddities of some of the studies noted that in the new one is that several of them use hours watching the television as a stand-in for the amount of time spent inactive. While that may have been true a few decades back, we've since greatly diversified our inactivity with computers and mobile devices, offering new ways of feeling like you're doing something without the need to do anything. So the researchers decide to look into this in more detail and tackle some related question. Their study designed separated computer use and TV viewing, and it looked at how each influenced the onset of mental problems associated with aging. It also examined whether physical activity could influence the association between sedentary behavior and aging-associated problems. The work focused on the influence of sedentary behavior on mental issues. Physical health issues weren't examined. It's possible for something that looks relatively good in this analysis to be an overall negative once physical issues are factored in. That out of the way, what did they see? With age and gender controlled for time spent watching TV was associated with an increased risk of dementia, a hazard ratio of 1.3, meaning they were 1.3 times more likely to be diagnosed with indications of dementia. Physical activity lowered the risk very slightly. By contrast, computer use lowered the risk by quite a bit more, dropping the hazard ratio to 0.8. The same trend held when the researchers divided the group into thirds and compared high, medium, and low TV viewing and computer use, controlling for additional factors like diet, alcoholic use, and obesity didn't change the outcome either. Although the impact of physical activity was minor, the researchers tested whether it might offset some of the problems associated with high TV viewing or low computer use. High levels of exercise appeared to have a somewhat protective effect, but it's a minor one. Mental reserve. Overall, the results suggest that we need to separate how we think about the problems associated with sedentary activity. In terms of physical health, any type of inactivity may be roughly equivalent. But regarding mental issues, how you spend your inactivity matters. Some means of being a couch potato involve passive consumption, and others involve a greater degree of mental activity. In this sense, the results fit neatly into a large body research that indicates that remaining mentally active can provide a degree of protection from dementia. Things like reading and playing vocabulary games appear to generally reduce dementia risk, and the benefits seem to build up even if the reading happens when people are relatively young. So there's some reason not to be surprised by this general outcome. That said, there are still a fair number of reasons for caution. Among other potential issues, the researchers note that activity levels were only checked at one point in the participants' history and were self-reported, which tends to be less accurate. It's also important to recognize that computer time will include a vast range of activities, some significantly more involved than others, so still some work to do here. But the next time someone yells at you for wasting time reading, you can tell them you're protecting your mental health, and then you can go back to your reading. What's trending now with working from home? You may be asked to take a pay cut to keep working from home. 
The pandemic made it possible for many people to relocate and telework from where they want to live. Working from home during the pandemic became a surprising success. Many workers enjoy a better quality of life, plus savings on commuting, office wardrobe, and other expenses. Companies boosted productivity and lowered costs. Now, as remote work looks likely to survive in some form for the foreseeable future, a battle is starting to brew over who should pocket those savings, with some employers arguing that working from home is a benefit that should be offset by, of course, from their point of view, lower salaries. With the pandemic easing, more companies are calling workers back to the office. Even so, about 30% of all paid workdays are still being done from home, up from just 5% before the COVID-19 outbreak. According to Working From Home Research Project, led by economists at Stanford and the University of Chicago, paying remote workers less is a practice that is already catching on abroad. In Britain, the law firm Stevenson Harwood recently announced that employees could work full-time from home on the condition that they take a 20% pay cut. Right now, such arrangements seem rare in the United States, probably because of the tight labor market. But that can change in the event of a recession as employers eye how remote working can lower labor costs and boost the bottom line. The Working From Home project found that 4 in 10 employers plan to use remote work as a way to ease overall wage growth pressures though not necessary by slashing salaries of existing employees. Companies, for example, can fill new openings with remote workers in cheaper markets. According to a survey by the software and data firm Payscale, a little more than 60% of employers said last summer that they were not considering lowering pay for future employees who work partly or fully from home but a significant 14% of employers said they were planning to cut wages for teleworkers in low-cost areas, and 17% said they were undecided. In dollar terms, economists estimate that the value to the teleworkers will amount to as much as 7.3% of their earnings. Some employers would like working from home to be seen as a benefit or perk, and they expect employees to feel the same way. But the benefits of teleworking are by no means one-sided. In many cases, employers have reaped savings as well. In addition to productivity gains, there is evidence that teleworkers actually spend more time on the job than do workers in the office. Some companies also have enjoyed savings by cutting back on rent and other expenses associated with maintaining a full-scale office. Salaries in the United States have long reflected the living costs and competitiveness of the area where a workplace is situated. Even before the pandemic, some companies adjusted salaries for employees who requested to move to lower-cost markets. The practice has become more common in the last two years, led by tech companies including Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Although remote workers often didn't like the pay cut, it didn't create a huge backlash partly because people relocating to cheaper towns understood that they might still be able to have the same purchasing power. But the practice raises vexing questions about workplace fairness. 
Should employees at the same company doing the same job be paid differently because one chooses to live in, let's say, San Francisco and the other one in Manhattan Beach? Should workers who move to more expensive markets get a raise? Compensation experts say that demanding teleworkers take less pay, risk undercutting the biggest gains of a remote worker option, enhancing productivity by being able to attract skilled workers and minimizing costly turnover. Many workers say they are willing to accept some trade-offs. The hybrid work schedule amounts to hundreds of extra dollars a month. If you count the money saved on train fare, lunches, and everything else involved in going to the office. But its value is potentially far bigger. By moving further away where housing is cheaper, you can build a better future for your family who may have a disability. The work-from-home impact on food services industry. One result of the pandemic is the recent boom in remote work. Many businesses had to close their doors, some temporarily, others permanently. Offices are reopening now, and however, this does not necessarily mean everyone will return to the workplace. It's expected that 3.9 million Americans will continue to work from home for at least half the week. The rise in remote work directly impacts various food services. Starbucks and Dunkin' are known for their coffee, which is the morning ritual for many coffee drinkers. Without morning commuters stopping in for their Java fix, meant sales have gone down. McDonald's reported that breakfast sales suffered. Dunkin' sales were down 15%. Starbucks announced its sales were down 35%. External factors contributed to the plummeting sales and the growth of online delivery apps is only making matters worse for restaurants. With more people spending their days and disposable income at home, online ordering for delivery or takeout has become more popular. The rise in food delivery app usage is driven by people wanting to save money and for its convenience. Restaurants located in densely populated urban areas feel the effects of businesses transitioning to a work-from-home business model. Studies have shown that cities have become less congested due to the pandemic, which means restaurants are also less crowded. Restaurants may need to find new, innovative ways to stay competitive in a saturated market. The food delivery space is dominated by major players like DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats. There is a silver lining, however, for a business operating in the food service industry. Because so many people felt isolated and experienced loneliness during the pandemic, there's a strong desire to socialize at restaurants and bars during downtime. Restaurants need to do their best to cater to remote workers trying to take a break from their home workspace. Another noticeable impact of remote workers are having on the food industry is the rediscovery of family mealtimes. The impact of remote work has changed restaurants' approach to delivering high-quality experiences for their customers. It's become evident that many people can do their jobs with ease while working at home, using tools and online resources to get their work done. This also means lunch breaks are becoming more of a foundational part of their day. Remote workers will continue to impact restaurants across the country 
based on current trends in the food service industry. Eateries will need to be flexible and adapt to the changes if they want to stay in business. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. Marty, you know, uh, we were we were talking uh, uh, just in between recording segments and, you know, over the course of time. And something has popped into my head and I don't know why. How much uh, you must watch a lot of TV. I, I've got only a few different streaming services. Um, I've got like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and, and uh, I think I've got Paramount. That's it. How many streaming services do you have? Do you have cable? Do you uh, tell, tell well, me? Well, I have, I have cable, and yeah. a lot of things come with cable. I okay. have the ones you have. I, I I have Hulu, so I get to watch only Murders in the Building, and I get to watch uh, uh, Orville, and I get okay. to watch right. uh, every episode ever of Castle. You know, Hulu's Ooh, good for those okay. things. Okay, all right. And it, it's got other series. It, it's pretty rich. It's pretty rich yeah, choices. Okay. I have Netflix, and occasionally there's a big movie that you can't get anywhere else. Same for Amazon's. Uh, same, uh, well, Paramount is all about Star Trek. I mean, you say anything you want. Yeah, it is. And Disney's all about the Marvels. Uh, so, yes, yes. Yeah. So, you know, you surrender. And, 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 and most of their age old uh, yeah, you know, yeah, library, uh, but yeah. Rainbows and 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 uh, uh, magic and all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, castles, that's different. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I also have cable. Yeah. And when you have cable with premium channels on it, you can mm-hmm. get those as streams. So I've got HBO and Stars and Showtime okay. as streams and AMC mm-hmm. and the History Channel uh, and uh, Ovation and, and a few others. Ovation, by the way, I love for. Uh, the Murdoch Mysteries, which is okay, turn of the century tech. Yeah, so yeah. you know it's a little weird. I don't actually watch that much TV, uh, but I'm married, and that uh, TV set does tend to be on a lot. I understand that. Yes, and it's not bad in the back. Anyway, uh, <laughs> when you can recite every Perry Mason, when you can recite every Star Trek episode, <laughs> I mean, why <laughs> background is fine. Yes, but but what if your grandma? You know, what if you want to watch something? Mm-hmm. How do you find mm-hmm. it? It's not the three channels of old. Right. If you, yeah. If the, the tuner itself might get 50 channels in any major market. Mm-hmm. And then if you've got cable, that could be hundreds more. Mm-hmm. And you still might not be able to see what you want because they're somewhere in, in streaming land. Mm-hmm. So watching TV has never been more complicated You've got cable systems, cable card into things like TiVo boxes and tuning mm-hmm, adapters. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, you're streaming on Roku and other boxes. You're streaming direct to the set. There is subscriptions with cable services, subscriptions without cable services, and te- oh, antennas. I got to say, rabbit ears, right? <laughs> the original <laughs> how I'm going to watch. Sure. Uh, some of us have seen the commercial with the guy on the boat calling the cable companies thieves and he's out on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico and he's turned on his TV and his little rabbit ear. You can see the buildings in the city from from through the yeah, window of the boat, yeah. right? His little rabbit ears let him watch TV live out there. He said, you can even get 4K. Well, not where he was. 4K is only experimental. It's it's not full time. Yeah, yeah. Broadcast yeah. land quite. Yeah, although, you know, delay airing this episode and it might be. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it wasn't being broadcast when that spot was shot. So essentially, it's kind of funny. The the end line is uh, uh, a guy watching TV who says, "It's for real," and no, it isn't. It's it's yeah, well, it's it's for exaggerating. Don't trust everything you see on television. Oh my gosh! <laughs> That's why we're on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> don't trust everything. Oh yeah, never mind. <laughs> trust us. <laughs> yes, don't trust anybody over thirty, and he was thirty-one when he said that. <laughs> So oh, I, what I want to do is, is suggest that listeners out there show a little compassion for grandma or the spouse or the brother-in-law or whoever says, I don't know how to watch Star Trek Discovery or I don't know how to watch Only Murders yeah, Building. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, 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 and you can tell them, you know, and you can also explain that. Just because they're streaming now doesn't mean they're going to be there forever. Yes. Well, but that's actually something that a lot of the folks who are older will identify with. They understand that not every, not every TV show makes it into reruns. Not every TV huh. show continues on. Now, uh, I it gets canceled after three seasons or whatever. I want to say or in I the case of Firefly, one. <laughs> I had Firefly, to get a nerd the, item the in precursor, there. Precursor to Castle. Yes, precursor yes. to the Rookie. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and do they have some of the same people? Never mind. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. It, it's, it is all so, so bizarre. Uh, I still watch TV. Everybody still watches TV sometimes. Oh, no. TV is not authentic. I'd, I'd, I'd rather watch um, old Chuck Norris movies. Well, those are on TV, bud. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, so for me, I've I've mostly I, I've mostly streamed uh, kind of a binge watch in in non binge format. Like I, I watched one episode of Criminal Minds every weekday at lunch for well, good because that gets for a long time really scary. <laughs> it took me but, whatever it was way, eight Google, months to do that. <laughs> I have not tried it myself, so I can't speak it to it. But I understand Google TV, yeah, is offering some guidance on finding shows, telling oh, you where okay. to look for them. Right. So if it is, <laughs> bless them, and if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements of computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Westchester PC Users Group We'll have a presentation on the James Webb Telescope, Thursday, September the 1st. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting on Friday, September the 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club will have a presentation on how to publish a nonfiction book on Amazon. Thursday, September the 8th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, 
The website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting on Friday, September the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information and confirmation, the phone number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on www.prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.